tell him about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? I've been drinking green tea all goddamn day! All of our team. And welcome back to Gag Reel, the unasked for and unnecessary podcast where we break down comedy television and comedy movies until the jokes aren't funny anymore. I am your host, Ryan Scanlon, and as per the usual, I'm joined by my brother, William. And comedy posters. And comedy posters. One day we're going to break down a comedy poster. Maybe for the Jerky Boys. I don't know. We'll find a good one. Comedy albums? No, that's true. Comedy comics? Yeah, Com- that's true, yeah. Comedy items like novelty? Yeah, we could do a whole season on you know novelty You know, one of those remote items, control like fart machines or something. Fart machines, Groucho Marx glasses. Yeah, the Groucho glasses. The chickens. We could, yeah, a season-long series. On the Groucho glasses. It sounds like you're just you're already getting into the silly territory here, which I, I think I uh, I can't blame you because this week we're talking about maybe one of the silliest movies ever made. Definitely one of the most memorable silly comedies ever made. Imagine if it would have taken place entirely in Camelot, as, as you know, as silly as this movie is. It, that's a, it is a silly place. That is a very silly place. But yeah, obviously we're, we're jumping at the seams here. Or is, that, is that a term? We're, we're, uh, we're popping out of the seams. We're hooting in the hainies. Yeah, but we, we are just super excited to be talking about yet another bona fide. I, 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 don't, I don't see anyone arguing that Monty Python and the Holy Grail is not a comedy classic. And I think through most of my life, I've seen it pop up on pop culture websites whenever they do a big blow up of top comedies of all time it's always in the running it might not be number one to some folks but it's usually there Uh, i know recently googling around and uh the most credible website and organization i could i know personally the american association for retired people the aarp they put it on their top 20 comedies of all time Mm. And they're old, so they know what they're talking about. You know, they've been around. Okay. I, I, I I'm sorry, I'm distracted because uh, I've just found the one bad review. <laughs> of course, okay, it yeah. sounds tongue in cheek, so who knows? But uh, was this from 1975? No, not at all. This was from three years ago on Reddit. So yeah, I guess. What better way to introduce a almost inarguable, a very important, nonsensical, classic comedy? Well, what better way to introduce this 1975 film than a Reddit post from three years ago? Oh, yeah. Go for it. Monty Python and the Holy Grail was terrible. Dot, dot, dot. And pure cringe. I tried watching this garbage on Netflix because it had great reviews and it, it is just awful and so cringy. I didn't find any of the jokes funny at all, and I had to stop when he got done with the French Fortress. Watching this was basically like watching some guy nobody likes to try impress people by embarrassing himself. Monty Python and the Holy Grail? More like Monty Python and the Holy Fail. I give this film my worst rating ever. Seven thumbs up. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I I can't tell. 
They're hard to read. Yeah. What's their, what's their name here? Uh, Let's blow up this username. The username is deleted. Okay. So. Were they proud of that comment is the question. Yeah. Because I would guess no. <laughs> but, yes, deleted user, thank you. AARP, thank you. I think we need to start talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Once in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. A picture so stunning in its effect, so vast in its impact, that it profoundly affects the lives of all who see it. One such film is... Very good, thank you. Yes, thank you. Next, please. Once in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. Uh, yes, thank you. Next. Once in a lifetime! Go away. What? Next. What's wrong with my voice? My voice is all right, my brain is wrong. Well. That's more like it. This is always weird to try and decide where to start with ones like this. You know, we've talked about this is Spinal Tap now. We've talked about Blazing Saddles. And now Monty Python, the Holy Grail. And it, with, with, uh, with these kind of really big ones, like, where do you jump in? Like, how can we add an original spin to a movie that most people have already seen and probably love? I don't know about original, but we could just start at the beginning. Okay. You know, some Swedish subtitles. Involving moose. Yeah. Or meese. I'm wondering if we should kind of, or if it's even worth it to go into our typical, like, here's my history with the film, or if we should I think maybe in. a little bit, because I think it's interesting how... That like the generations have passed on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It just seems like everybody stumbles on this or watches this movie around the same age. It seems like uh, you know once you get into middle school, there's always that period of time where everybody starts quoting it, and then the period of time after that, whenever they realize how ridiculous they sound quoting it, and then it just kind of puckers out. But it's always around 12 to 14, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say something similar. I feel like this is a kind of comedy, young, middle school boy, coming of age film, uh, at least from my experience. But that being said, I haven't been in middle school in a long, long time. I would hope that like something like it being on Netflix currently would kind of help pass that baton and introduce this to a younger generation. Uh, but I'm not sure. And I do wonder, you know, just like kind of most comedy, will this just age out one day? Yeah, I feel like it's just kind of perpetual goofiness. And like it's just really kind of classic comedy, comedy ideas, but done in kind of wild and unique ways. I, I feel like it kind of stands the test of time. I found um, a couple articles uh, talking about the comedic stylings and structure of the film. And uh, suggesting that the film is a satire of film itself. Yes, I read that article too from The Atlantic. And it's just, it's so spot on. 
yeah, I think there's a lot of sequences that really showcase that. And it's just kind of mocking a lot of what was just typical in cinema at the time. Oh, absolutely. And had, I feel like comedy films had, you know, played around with, uh, with film tropes beforehand. But I feel like this era really kind of started breaking that wide open and, and playing around between, you know, Brooks and the Pythons. And, you know, I, I don't want to give him any praise because he, he's not a great guy, but Woody Allen's films at the same time, they were all kind of being very playful in a very cinema-specific way to the fourth wall. Not that that was yeah. new for film, but just breaking the fourth wall in a way that was very specific to a film audience and was kind of poking and jabbing at film tropes themselves by, like you mentioned before, uh, you know, the opening credit gag. Oh, absolutely. Which comedy films today, I mean, I, maybe they would be looked at as just kind of imitating Holy Grail, but I don't see as many great kind of just opening goofs just right off the bat using every part of the the comedy bison or whatever, like uh, just making jokes in every scene, no matter what. There's never really just any kind of functional scenes in this movie. It's kind of all, everything's there for a laugh. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's just nonstop. And, and especially, yeah, not not just from, I mean, from opening sequence on. Like, and the, and the thing about it that blows my mind is how they're able to jam pack like mm -hmm. some of the absolute best, most quotable moments of the entire movie, just back to back at the very beginning, so that you're just kind of thrown in there. You know, you've got all these really memorable, really, really quotable yes. sequences. Just you know, like from the airspeed velocity of the European, as well as the African swallow. <laughs> then immediately after that, bring out your dead. Then immediately after that, come and see the violence inherent in the system. Then the witch trial, and it's just one after the other, all of these extremely memorable. And, you know, we're, we're just kind of attacking the movie right now with, with thoughts on everything that it does. But I think that's because, like I said before, this is kind of a special episode, a, a more unique movie. And I feel like it really is a, a the work of a kind of a comedy team just firing on all cylinders and really, like, pushing themselves to uh to make something really unique and yeah you mention how the start is just kind of bit great bit great quotable bit after bit after bit and I, I i feel like it also it sets up really well all of these jokes that then recur through the movie which on on this viewing for me because i've seen this movie so many times and maybe this is also part of like why like you said like this movie can become a bit uh, like, like you, you don't grow out of it per se, but you get a little tired of, uh, almost tired of hearing people quote it because, uh, it just, it, it, it does do, um, callbacks to a lot of these early jokes throughout the film and, and in pretty ingenious ways, but to the point where it, it just, these jokes really oh, stick yeah. with you, uh, for better or worse. For me, yeah, it was like the second... I think it was like the moment I saw somebody else and then realizing I had just done that and how ridiculous he seemed <laughs> quoting it that I was just like, okay, I'm going to take a break from this movie. That was like age 13. But it's it's fun to go back to and realize just how how funny the movie really is. Like like I said before, I guess we're, we're jumping ahead. Do we want to tackle this 
I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit about their journey from sketch show to feature film. And that might be something that not everyone knows about. I do have quite, quite a bit about the behind-the-scenes stuff this time around. For Life of Brian and Meeting of Life, I didn't have as much. I had more for yes. Life of Brian than I have for Meeting of Life. But for this one, I probably have the most. I'm excited. I guess I'll start with, uh, I guess, just the first uh, bullet point I have, which isn't the beginning of the making of the film, but more so just a discussion about why both The Holy Grail and The Life of Brian worked. And Terry Jones said that... Um, it was entirely because of Graham Chapman. And he said, uh, as wild and alcoholic and carouser as he was, and uh, how ferocious he was in his openness as an out gay man, he was the only member of the troupe who was actually capable of playing a completely straight character. And, um, and he goes on, he's, he discovered Graham Chapman's style when he attended a performance of the Cambridge Circus, where Graham and John Cleese uh, were both performing at the time. And uh, quote Terry Jones, he couldn't take his eyes off of them. For the life of me, I couldn't understand what he was doing. John and the others were being funny and acting their hearts out, but Graham was this mysterious figure on the stage, as if he just wandered in off the street and was bemused by being there. It was kind of a non-acting. And I think that non-acting approach was essential for how he interpreted the role of Arthur in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, as well as Brian in The Life of Brian. He was very much the still center around which all of this madness yeah, revolved. Yeah, I can, uh, I could definitely agree with that, especially for the Holy Grail, since it is so much of just kind of a sketch comedy. I, I feel like you genuinely want King Arthur to uh, to complete mm -hmm. his quest, just from Chapman's performance here, and how I don't know, just unabashedly <laughs> unfunny he finds the world around him. Exactly. He, he gets so annoyed by everything. But um, there was absolutely no studio interference in the making of this film. Yeah, this was independent, right? Yeah, hmm. there was no studio. Not a single person would fund the film around that time. But around that time, the income tax in the UK was as high as 90% for some people. So they thought, just, uh, just an idea, why not turn to rock stars who knew their show and try and convince them that it'd be a really decent tax write-off to fund a film. Led Zeppelin contributed 31,500 pounds. Pink Floyd contributed 21,000. Jeffro Toll's lead singer Ian Anderson contributed 6,300. And then on top of those guys, the film producer of the movie, Michael White, offered up 78750 Island Records gave about 21000 Charisma Records gave about 5000 Tim Rice, lyricist Tim Rice's <laughs> cricket team, wow. gave 5000 Chrysalis Records also gave uh, 6300 And it all added up to a film budget of about 175350 pounds. Enough to make something but still like practically nothing of a budget. And so in order to give the film a distinct look while still having almost no budget, they looked uh, to the works of Pier Paolo Pasolini, whose uh, Italian films always had a very dirty and realistic look. It dawned on uh, Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, who directed the film, 
um, while they were watching pa- uh, Pasolini's films that you could add a little smoke and filth to a scene and it starts to look a lot more artistic. Yeah, yeah, to interrupt you, that was something on this viewing that I feel like I got out of this movie for the first time. Uh, and I, I just admiring how pretty the movie is, like for, for what it is, like mm-hmm. there's just so many sunbeams like through that scene with the uh, the Black Knight and that sword fight. Yeah, David Lowry... The guy who made the uh, recent film, The Green Knight, which is a beautiful film in its own right, was asked like for his major inspirations. He said his two primary inspirations uh, in terms of the visual aesthetic was Andrei Rublev, a Tarkovsky film taking place in medieval Russia, as well as uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I feel like it uses that low budget and really leans into it in like just leaning on the, the scenery of just England itself. And uh, I don't know if it was Scotland yeah. or where they filmed this with all these castles, but just gorgeous green hills. All these castles. <laughs> was it just one? They filmed it with one castle. I mean, it, the interesting thing is it it looks beautiful because yeah. Scotland looks old. <laughs> so yes. it looks accurate to what you were doing. And the castle, we were only allowed to uh, film in this one castle, Dune Castle. And we tried to film everywhere else. They said, oh, no, no, you can't have comedy here. There's real history here. You can't have comedy. It is now a tourist spot. Really? The Dune, actual Dune Monty Castle, Python? The actual yeah. Monty Python attracts tourists from all, so all over the world. Well, they made it work. I was about to get to that. So, like, when they started filming, everything went wrong from the start. They had all these castles planned out for... Every, every scene that they needed, but the National Trust canceled their access to the castles that they planned to film in, telling them that they wouldn't respect the dignity of the fabric of the buildings. Quote Terry Gilliam, these places had dungeons and blood on the walls, for, Christ, for God's sake. They've stood for hundreds of years against hordes of invaders. What were we going to do? Make people laugh at castles? Throw a cow off the side of it. (laughs) Ducks. They ended up filming like all the castle sequences at one castle. And uh, Camelot was just a cardboard cutout. Lose my leech. Camelot. 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 It's only a model. On their first day, their camera broke. They couldn't afford to replace it, so they had to fix it. However, the audio wouldn't sync up, so they couldn't. They could only film sequences without any dialogue for a while. They got that working, and then they had trouble with Graham Chapman. He had uh, started playing the roles while in the throes of alcoholism, and he was showing up to set completely plastered. And then it, it he it dawned on him that he was you know like it, he realized that it, he was letting his friends as well as himself down. So he tried going cold turkey. Only to get the shakes uh, from alcohol withdrawal, and so they had to wait for him to go through that too. There were tantrums on the set. It, Terry Gilliam talks about that uh, quote. Oh, oh yeah, all of us. These were well-educated, cultured men who didn't take kindly to standing in ditches covered in mud. I had a huge argument with John Cleese while I was trying to shoot in sequence. He'd bloody written. All the arguments were about the quality, despite the personal digs. But, um, yeah, they, they uh, and then I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but there was 
John John Cleese and some of the other performers got really annoyed by Terry Gilliam's perfectionist aspect of his filmmaking and made jabs that he was treating them like the paper cutouts in his animations rather than real people. I think we should take a, a brief aside here to talk a little bit about the animations and how many there are in this movie. That like I I guess oh, I never really thought to about how radically different that was with the other two films but doing this pythonathon and just comparing like how few there were in obviously life of brian only having the one to start it off and then meaning of life still has a handful for the transitions and for just kind of effects but like there is so many here and I, i'm sure gilliam didn't sleep at all for the months of making this movie in between the real direction yeah. and then the animating directions. Yeah. I feel like they used the animations to maybe like fill out the time. It also, it really, it helps tell the story though and make this. Yeah. But it works. It, it yeah. really feels like, I medieval, really liked it. You know, it, it kind of builds out the world and, uh, adds so many more visual gags. Yeah. Uh, other, other, other than that info, it went on to, uh, you know, become a classic. But, uh, other, other than that, I just have little like bits of trivia if you want to just go through all the trivia or if you want to you know talk about the movie for a little while and then come back to it we haven't done this in, in a few episodes i think we should start saving this for the big ones and we got a big one here so i i think we should go scene by scene here safe to kind of skim through the first few since we've already kind of talked through those but um a little yeah. bit yeah let, let, i have a, a scene list right here a rough more more of kind of a sketch list and uh i may should we start with the the trouble with swallows do you have anything to add about this uh well right before that for the opening title sequence they had run out of money by the time they got to the opening mm -hmm. titles of the movie they could only afford white text over black backgrounds. <laughs> so in order to take advantage of the space while also not adding any money to the budget, it was Michael Palin that suggested the idea of, uh, how about just throwing in um, Swedish subtitles that get more and more absurd as it goes on and then change it to llamas at the With end. The, yeah, the, the sacking of the entire company that was making those credits. Fades out and then we open up on an entirely fog-covered Sequence as we hear horse trots, only to find out that it's a man holding a couple coconuts while a man pretends to gallop. And somehow this bit was not spoiled for me before I saw this movie. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> despite, like, I feel like this is, you know, I, I go to comic cons here and there and, you know, just general kind of role playing stuff. I, I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and the, the hoof coconut thing is brought up constantly. And, and you'll see people at Ren Fairs doing it and stuff. It's just, I feel like it has become this weird kind of cultural touchstone thing. But somehow I never had that spoiled for me when I was like 12 years old and watched this for the first time. It was the funniest thing in the world to me. Most people are aware that the coconut joke came from the group's inability to afford actual horses. Sure. 
But um, it's a hilarious, just for, wild, yeah. surreal kind of decision, though. But uh, yeah, the joke was actually based on old BBC, the you know, an old BBC radio method of recreating the sound of horses. So they would they would just use coconuts over the microphone, and so it's just like, why not do that <laughs> on camera? Yep. <laughs> and then have a scene immediately after that talking about how ridiculous it is that this guy's using coconuts. I feel like the timing was pretty perfect because if you do it too long and then don't comment on it till the end, I feel like the, the joke's already kind of wore off. Uh, it, yeah. It really good timing of kind of making a whole bit about it, but then dropping the bit for the whole rest of the movie, except for the last kind of, you know, uh, at the bridge questioning scene way to tie it all together but uh yeah there's a classic kind of very python-esque sketch here with the arguing about migratory birds and king, yeah king arthur that's so Patsy good just kind of the fact that they were trying to make logic out of how <laughs> a british person in 932 has coconuts to pretend to be riding on horseback <laughs> you know like well maybe maybe there's two swallows carrying a coconut it could grip it by the husk it's not a question of where he grips it it's a simple question of weight ratios a five ounce bird could not carry a one pound coconut well it doesn't matter very funny scene followed by followed by yes bring out your dad i feel happy i feel i was gonna say the the diction plays such a strong role in in that sequence uh-huh. because it's like it's funny that you know like the guy is trying to bring the old man who's not who's clearly not dead mm-hmm. and is perfectly fine and he'd think he'd go for a walk but the fact that he didn't say you know like i feel great uh i'm i'm you know like or get angry uh-huh. all he keeps saying is i feel happy i think also the blocking here and like the decision to have the old man over his shoulder is pretty yeah. funny and he never like drops the old guy like it's just always hanging there over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes yeah uh he's and, not fighting and he's it, just i feel fine cleese's uh deadpanness here also kind of wins this scene he, he's a really great straight man when he wants to be and uh oh yeah he's, he has that great range of being going from straight man to the most absurd person in the room Mm-hmm. But uh, he, he plays a great straight man here and that, you know, you don't really know where he's going to lean in, uh, w- with this situation. And then the way Eric Idle's character, like, kind of grounds the whole thing when he says, like, you know, like, oh, I'll be back around. I, I'm, I'm not back around till Thursday. You know, like, the, the, that other family, you know, they're, just, they're dropping like flies. <laughs> the, the way it just all comes together. Yeah, but yeah. just, like, the, the phrasing, I feel happy. It's like nobody, nobody... What? Funny way to say I'm very much alive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's just, I don't know. This is almost, I wonder, I feel like we're going to be going through every one of these scenes with being like, yep, it's great. For a little while. Yeah, next we have the the Palin rant about autocracy. Yeah, my absolute favorite sequence in the entire movie and probably one of the most Monty Python-esque sequences. Yeah, 100%. In the entire movie. The way he'll just break... <laughs> We're living in a dis- dictatorship, and then 
you know, uh, they're they're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. commune. You know, that, that, we take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case be of more Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Also, the, the scene, like, continues the absurdity and the silliness that the coconuts bring by having them just, you know, moving mud from one side. Yeah, they're just moving the, dirt. They're moving mud. And Terry... And then the, Terry, uh, yeah, Terry Jones says, oh, there's some lovely filth over here. Yeah, yeah, they're just... They're in full peasant mode, but they're actually a uh, a, a collective, you know, they're a, a socialist society of sorts. Yeah. But uh, yeah, already kind of taking light political jabs, just like, you know, their show did and just like the preceding movies really do. I feel like the Holy Grail like makes these kind of light moments here and there like this, but for the most part kind of stays in just an absurdist lane, not really making that many overall points. Yeah. But yeah, next next we have one of the more iconic scenes of the movie. And I, I feel like the blood splatter here goes goes a long way and is something they would have never been able to do on TV as we have limbs yeah. being chopped off and blood just flying this way and that it just it's so fake though yeah but that's why it's funny i feel yeah exactly which if it was if it was anywhere in any bit more realistic then it would not be funny at all but it just it's so intense too and it it just like kind of nails this well, it might still be funny actually but still it nails this line that i don't think had really been crossed to my knowledge at the time uh, of that kind of hyper violence for the sake of comedy yeah and not that many movies attempt it or do it super well even nowadays yeah it's true just off the top of the head though maybe maybe there are I can't examples think of anything but at the moment, as always but yeah write into gagrealpod at gmail.com if you think we're talking like fools and have uh, your own thoughts to weigh in I don't know how much I have to say about the him chopping this dude up scene. Uh, it's great physical comedy from Cleese inside of the suit and just uh, it, Graham Chapman's deflection of his hits overall. I also think it very much hits home, especially to like the 12, 13-year-olds in us. Sure. Because everybody who's 12 or 13 had probably just grown out of playing swords with their friends <laughs> and arguing in the same way like I just I just chopped you up no you didn't I'm fine but this was like a visual representation of that uh-huh. yeah very very silly kind of sequence there, there is like some cutting here that looks a little cheap a little dated between uh Gilliam as Patsy and the rest of the fight it just kind of cutting yeah. to him reacting like getting enthusiastically kind of air punching it's true. But the editing to make it look like, I believe it was John Cleese who was the Black yeah. Knight, to make John Cleese actually lose his final leg, the mid-air uh-huh. chop, was actually pretty brilliantly edited. Yeah. I actually I actually paused it and, and, and tried re-watching it to see where it actually cut and, and like how they had actually done that. I'm pretty sure he had like... One of his legs already tied behind. Uh, his yeah, back. I think that's what they did. And the other leg was just. And the other one was probably like a leg, still, yeah. yeah, but still, like just the the way they they were able to get that done was pretty uh, pretty well edited, right there. Yeah, those whole movies full of like really creative use of effects and like just good enough kind of cheap effects work that you know because it, it is aiming for this kind of weird schlocky, almost pseudo documentary kind of look. 
it, yeah. it works so well. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Moving on though. Yeah, wait, what do we got next? The witch trial. Uh, I think the the only thing I have to say about this is a duck. I I have I have one thing to say. No, I'm joking. Yeah, go on. Yeah, isn't there a dude in the background with a shaving cream beard? I, I got something for that, Will. Actually, I think oh, yeah? we need to talk about the best background characters in these movies. Guys that are just kind of there for the sake of being a visual gag, and the shaving cream yeah. guy is pretty high on my list. Yeah, that that's always been, but that was the moment that like it sunk in when I was a kid. Like, uh, this is this this movie is something else because <laughs> it was like wow. Like and you know you watch those Zucker, Zuckerman Zucker yeah the, the Abrams Zucker movies yeah, a, Zucker Abrams Zucker, the Zazz yes the, the Zazz flicks and there's all sorts of background gags but like this one had just one major one <laughs> and it was the best one I've ever seen like dude in the shaving cream in, in yeah seven twenty three England or whatever nine hundred thirty two yes like what the hell is going on there great goof. And yeah, I don't know if anyone from the other uh, other flicks beat it. I really love Terry Gilliam's throwaway Rastafarian Jewish guy. Uh, oh yeah, that was great. In the Meaning of Life. Yeah, and and, and among all of the uh, the women at the stoning scene in Life of Brian, I, I feel like there's a few you could. <laughs> that was great too. Feel like there's a few that just were really leaning into it in, in really funny ways. But uh, Shaving Cream Guy might be number one. Yeah, but uh, over overall, yeah, that's a, it's one of my favorite sequences. It's it's just so ridiculous, and the way that they like honor mm-hmm. Bedivere <laughs> for his quote unquote science, which lead it lead it leads me to talk about a, a running gag they do with him through the whole movie of him with that dumb flap constantly flipping <laughs> yes, it up yes. every time he wants to say anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's just gotta flip it up. Flip up the flap. <laughs> One of my favorite uh, Terry Jones roles. Oh, 100%. I mean, I've got another one that we'll get to. That's my absolute favorite he's ever played. Uh-huh. But but uh, this this is pretty this is pretty great. And, and I think he, he's the truest sidekick of, uh, of King Arthur. You know, he, he's the one that makes he's it. He's the one that makes it to the end and also gets arrested. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I think it was a fair call. She was a witch. And let's uh let's move on to do, do, do. Camelot is is quite a silly silly place. Well, yeah. So he goes off, and then like the book of the film comes in. Yes, which it recruits. also includes some great visual gags of the yes the the obvious sir not appearing in this film. But then I also really like the like gorilla hand coming in at the end of that. Yeah, that was actually filmed in Terry Gilliam's living room. His uh, his wife Maggie Weston was uh, the hand turning the page, and Gilliam was the gorilla hand. <laughs> and uh, Sir Not appearing in this film was a baby photo of Michael Palin's son Thomas. Oh, that's great! Yeah, great classic. You know, very I- iconic jokes here. Yeah, and yeah, Camelot. Uh, he has the his team together now, and I guess we should go to Camelot. Camelot song yeah. appears one of. The only like real full-on musical numbers in, in the film. It was great, and I, I love the sound design, including uh, stepping on a cat uh, repeatedly and rhythmically. It's one of those. I think it's it's only probably five frames of the entire movie. Yeah, but yeah. They show the 
the cat being stepped on, which they later use uh, in, in the scene where they go intimidate the woman with mm-hmm. me. Yeah, and then I also like the uh, the cutaway in the middle of the song where the music just stops and the guys in the dungeon just clapping. Yep, yep, which looks very similar to the Life of Brian Dungeon Palin character. <laughs> but yeah, great great musical number. I don't know what I, I could say to it. Uh, I never knew what a pram was until years later. Yeah. I had to look that up. Yeah, but why don't you tell the audience? A pram is a stroller. You know, he has to push the baby stroller around a lot, I guess. Which I I, I think just because it rhymed with camel. Yeah, exactly. Delivery is exactly. great there. A ton of time also put into this ridiculous musical number. It, it, it's very mm-hmm. over the top. A lot of effort put into it. All the cuts feel natural. And it's just, it's short enough that it feels exciting nonstop. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, they don't go to Camelot. Nope. It is a silly place. Instead, they meet and so, God. Yeah, they meet uh, also Graham Chapman. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah, who tells him to uh, stop groveling. <laughs> I hate groveling. And uh, go find the Holy Grail. And I, I love this mix of animation and, and real life uh, and, and real real person video humans. Yeah. It uh yeah I feel, I feel like th- this movie just is such a good marriage of kind of all their different styles and of, of comedy and Gilliam's just visual animations blend so well into the actual visual design of this movie. I yeah I think uh, I think it definitely lends a lot to the fact that he co-directed with Terry Jones. If he had kind of uh, done it like they did, like Meaning of Life where it was, you know, like Terry Gilliam pretty much just did the uh, the Crimson... Uh, yeah. The Crimson, the Crimson Assurance. Mm-hmm. And uh, Terry Jones did the rest. Um, there would have been, like, probably some visual discontinuity, but the way... I, I, I feel like the fact that Terry Gilliam knew what he was going to animate was able to just kind of uh, seamlessly combine the two. But I think yeah, we need to talk about... Another one of the most quoted and maybe the most quoted moments of the movie with uh, John Cleese's Frenchman taunting the uh, King Arthur and, and his, his yes. gang. Fun fact. Uh, John Cleese was the one who came up with the idea for this French soldiers taunting after he was reading a history book about medieval troops whose sole purpose was to taunt opposing enemies before battle. <laughs> and then uh, he combined that with the fact that there was a Roman practice of catapulting dead or rotting animals into castles to draw the enemies out. So they did the opposite. So, uh, yeah, that throw it out of the, the castle uh-huh. and uh, make the livestock living. <laughs> uh, but still surprisingly accurate. Which, like somehow there still hasn't been another i mean i guess you know you don't want to just completely rip off an amazing movie like this but i just i can't think of another funnier death than someone just dying by cow being thrown <laughs> at them that's true there's lots of, i feel like there has been some other scenes in movies where someone gets crushed oh, by sure. something lots of examples of that but can you beat cow and the reaction and just the crushing sound it just it came out of nowhere too it's so perfect Somehow, yeah. despite this movie, and I feel like a lot of pro- this is often a problem in like absurdist comedies 
But uh, somehow you never really see what, what's coming with this, despite like knowing how wild it's already been. It's true. Like you, you really don't see like the idea of of them launching a cow out. You don't see it coming. No, you really don't. That's a good. Uh, that's a good point. It's a fi- It's a hard to, line to walk to like somehow keep a movie somewhat grounded while it's utterly nonsense. And I think like what you said before, that like Graham Chapman really kind of anchors this. Yeah. But how do you feel about Cleese's Frenchman here and this sequence? I think it's. I think it was a good call. I think it's the most of all the things to quote from Monty Python. It's the one that hurts the most. Really? Yeah. But it's still brilliant, you know. <laughs> like. Fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberries. Very, very funny insult. It's a great insult. I got nothing against people quoting this movie at, the, at this point in my life. No, I, yeah, I, I but enjoyed when it. I was a kid, though. Yeah, it did get a little oversaturated. You know, it was like everyone yeah. found this thing at the same time. And so, yeah, it, it was a little much. I'm I'm all for it. If someone says yeah. that, I'll, I'll gladly fart in their general direction. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 great. I, I love I love when he looks back at his soldiers and just laughing like, I told them I already built one. <laughs> It's great. It's a great sequence. Also, I love the the idiotic, uh, you know, failure of a Roman Trojan horse. Yeah, the Trojan horse. The failure of a Trojan Trojan rabbit. Yeah, the Trojan rabbit that Bedivere thinks is genius, but they forgot to hide inside. But uh, yeah, that that was great. Great sequence. The throwing of all the animals, that really caps it all off. But But, uh, uh, wait, what just happened? I have become robot. Well then, this is English Robot Ryan here to wrap up this episode early. This was intended to be a single episode, but holy robioli we had a lot to say about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Like, holy robo balls do we have fun things in store in part 2. So please, come back next time as we wrap up this Pythonathan. As always you can reach out to us at the email address gagrelpod at gmail.com. Gagadoodle dandy, eat my highly nutritious robo farts. <laughs> <laughs>